0: Big start for Australia. Gold and a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to take up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on a third. He's got it. 9 a world record for Donovan Bailey and a gold medal.
1: A perfect score. 10.0 for Dodge Cometici. A perfect score. The first time I've never seen in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion,
0: Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt spreading ahead, winning by daylight, and setting a world record now. 6'8", the wind is okay
1: How easy was that? Welcome once again to Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast As we come to you for another one of our vault interviews Going through some classic interviews with past and, well mainly past Olympians uh, Throughout the history of our parent show, The Brink uh, and today it's a, uh, it's a bit of a different one. Our first ever Paralympian and one of the greatest Paralympians to ever grace this earth. Uh, an outstanding athlete, Michael Milton, who, uh, is the most successful Australian Paralympic athlete ever in the Winter Olympics. He has won six gold, three silver, two bronze across his stellar career and, uh, also did go on to compete in the summer. Olympics uh in 2008 in in cycling he wasn't able to add to his medal tally but uh one of the the very few I guess Australian athletes to ever compete in both winter and summer Paralympic games and just an outstanding athlete very inspirational and uh this was a a very fun chat back from 2010 so uh we we hope you enjoy it I certainly did and it's great to be living through these memories so uh here we go Michael Milton uh is the greatest ever Paralympic athlete in the winter games for Australia And here is that chat from 2010. Michael Milton first strapped a pair of skis to his legs when he was only three years old before bone cancer caused him to lose a leg when he was nine. Despite the personal setback, Michael went on to become one of Australia's most successful Paralympic athletes, making his debut at just 14 at the 1988 Winter Paralympics and going on to win 11 Paralympic medals in total. Michael has also tried his hand at speed skiing and is currently the world's fastest disabled skier. Recently, Michael has been involved in motivational speaking as well as swapping the Winter Paralympics for the summer, competing in the 2008 Paralympics in cycling in Beijing. During the week, I spoke to Michael about his career and what he can expect for the future. Michael, thank you very much for your time here on The Brink this morning. Good morning. I started skiing at the age of three. Now, how does a three-year-old Canberra boy get involved in skiing?
0: I guess my parents had a real passion for the sport. They actually had their honeymoon skiing. So uh, they started a ski shop the year I was born, and it was pretty natural for both my sister and I to learn to ski at a young age.
1: So did you sort of go out to, what, Threadbow and sort of learn your craft out that way?
0: Oh, I think I first went to Mount Selwyn um, in the early days, and then, yeah, spent, spent a lot of time at Threadbow as well.
1: And is it hard, given that obviously skiing isn't one of Australia's key sports that we're involved in, is it hard getting involved in such a sport that doesn't have the popularity of some of the other sports?
0: I guess getting involved with it is not hard, especially when you're, you're only living um, a couple of hours away from the biggest ski resorts in the country. There are obviously challenges in terms of getting to the top at a world level because, uh, you know, our competition season is, is outside of the major competition seasons. There's not the same opportunities or competition, uh, particularly for an athlete with a disability. So it's not the easiest sport to get into at a high level. But uh, for myself, it was a very, very re- rewarding one.
1: And has it changed a lot since when you first got it started, given that the exposure, I suppose, coming up to the Winter Olympics at this time of the year? Is it a lot easier to get involved in it compared to when you did? I
0: guess there's a support network there um, that is certainly better than when I started. Um, as an athlete with a disability... Uh, I got into the sport and pretty much competed against able-bodied kids the same age. These days, uh, there's certainly more of a structure, more support from the Australian Paralympic Committee. Things are a lot more formalised, and in many ways, that makes it easier.
1: Was the Olympics always a goal for you, and was the achievement always sort of to try and be our nation's first Winter Olympic medalist?
0: Certainly, you know, the Paralympics was, was always a goal for me to, to get to. I think I've got a bit of videotape of, of me at uh, 11 starting to talk about wanting to To go to the Paralympic Games, and and for me, that was a a huge goal. So uh, that was always something I was striving for and and wanted to be a part of. I think it's pretty natural as a a kid when when you get into a sport, you know, you want to be the best you can be at it, and you want to be the best in the world at it and that means competing at that level
1: and you made your debut at the 1988 winter olympics you were only 14 michael was this a challenge given that you're in the world's biggest sporting stage you're 14 years of age i mean it must have been hard
0: yeah absolutely you know i had a a a great team support structure around me um There was uh, a few times, you know, when the coaches would have to stay home with me, some of the other athletes, the entire team might go out for for a a dinner and a couple of drinks afterwards, I'd go to dinner and then go home with the coaches and and things like that. There are always going to be challenges competing um, at a senior level without the same physical emotional development, but um, we had a good support structure around me, and I think from my point of view, it was really good to be a part of things at such a young age, because uh, it meant that by the time I I was um, physically mature enough and starting to ski at the top level, I was really ready to perform at the the highest level.
1: Now, a lot of people probably be aware, we've had Stephen Bradbury on the show, and many people see him as our nation's first Winter Olympic gold medalist. Many people might not be aware, though, that you were Australia's first Winter Paralympic or Olympic gold medalist, when you won gold in the '92 Albertville Games. Is this an achievement, obviously, that must feel absolutely magnificent to go on your resume, there, Michael?
0: Oh, absolutely! It was—you know—it was a magic, uh, magic time in my life. At 19 years of age, winning my first Paralympic gold medal and my country's first medal too. Um, the atmosphere around the team with our first success. I won gold that day. Michael Norton from Victoria won bronze. Um, you know, it was it was amazing to to have that success in the atmosphere because there'd been so many people behind the scenes working towards it for so long and, uh, you know, to to be a part of, of their reward for, for putting in for such a long period of time was, uh, was amazing.
1: What was the public's reaction like back in 92 with that gold medal on your name there? Was there a lot of attention given that it was our first Winter Olympic sort of gold medal in either Paralympics or Olympics, or was it kind of forgotten?
0: I guess my expectations were very low back then. Um, you know, I came home and got interviewed by local television, which was huge for me. Um, I... Uh, uh, you know, went to a, an Aussie Rules game um, down in Melbourne and was, uh, you know, part of the function there and got presented at halftime. Uh, there was, uh, you know, there seemed to be lots of things going on, and, and even though it probably wasn't huge for, from my point of view, it was uh, it was a big part of things. So I guess, you know, there wasn't. You know, it was five minutes of fame, and uh, it literally lasted a week and and then I I got back to normal life and work.
1: And then given today, though, that you're probably a very well-known figure, though. I mean, times have changed, I suppose, With that, Michael.
0: Absolutely. It's been one of the really great things about my career is to see the evolution of uh, Paralympic sport in the way athletes with disabilities are treated. Um, It, uh, you know, it really has evolved. And, you know, being a part of things when I secured my first... uh, sponsorship um, in 2002, ten years after I won my first Paralympic gold medal, to be a part of that era and, and a part of that evolution has been fantastic.
1: Now over the course of your career you went on to compete in three more Winter Paralympics and you have got a total of 11 medals including six gold. Did you ever think you would achieve this level of success?
0: You know, it's always something you hope for, it's always something that you, you go out on, on a day to day basis and try and win um, races and, and perform it at your very best um, and uh, you know I guess uh, to be able to, to come home with um, with hardware is, is always a wonderful feeling and, and one of the rewards for, for the work that you put
1: in. Now, for the 2006 Torino Olympics, which turned out to be your last Winter Games, they were drastically affected in your category, where previously it only allowed people with one leg to compete, but then it, they included people who could just stand. Now, what were your thoughts on this, and did it make winning that silver medal all that more special?
0: You know, the classification system changed, so... Uh, before 2004, uh, at Paralympic level, um, I would compete against other athletes with one leg. Um, and then in 2006, I was competing against athletes with one arm who wear a prosthetic while skiing. Basically, anybody with CP, anybody who could stand up skiing. So it made the field a lot deeper. It turned a race of around 40 athletes who would qualify for the Paralympics into a race of over 100. Um, it meant that um, it was certainly a lot tougher, um, To me they were good things, but there were some negative points to it as well in terms of of having a level playing field and and the fairness of the race. They used a mathematical handicapping system um, based on previous race results from the best person in each category. To calculate um, that, to me, it, it wasn't uh, wasn't as fair as the previous system. So there were some negatives and some positives to it, but in the end, um, I felt like on that day I uh, I skied as, as well I could, as I could possibly expect to, and for me, uh, I guess it was on the day about the way I skied and the way I performed, and I was generally pretty happy with that.
1: And of course, you get a silver medal out of it, so you can't complain about that, can you, Michael? <laughs> no,
0: absolutely, you're not. You know, I guess um, there is uh, not the same feeling as as winning a gold um, because you're not on the top step of the podium particularly when you know you dominate all the other skiers who ski in the same format as you with one leg um, and you really have a really great run and think you have performed at your very best but you still fall short they're um there's probably uh, some feelings there of of regret and of of wishing they'd um, used the old system. It's a
1: similar thing, I suppose, to when you competed in Beijing at the Olympics. I remember watching it on TV and you'd come up there, he's Michael Milton, he's doing his lap, and then the competitor after you, instead of having, say, the one leg, he's got two prosthetic legs, but he looks like he's going about 20 times faster than (laughs) you were doing. Now, is this sort of the similar concept? A lot of people, I suppose, get confused with the way they categorise that. Do you think that's an obstacle that the Paralympics need to overcome to get a better awareness of how how they do this?
0: You know, it's one of the biggest challenges and issues within the Paralympic movement. You've got basically a, a continuous spectrum of people, from quite severe disabilities through to quite minor disabilities, and then you've got to classify them into certain groups of people um, who you think and you make it as fair as possible, who you can compete on a level playing field and. Uh, you know, in the end, there are going to be um, times that it works well and there are going to be times that it maybe doesn't work so well. Um, it's it's a continuous challenge and you've also got the difficulties of not being able to put one system in place because in every sport, different types of disabilities react in a different way. Um, it's just extremely complex and it's certainly a big issue for people to watch Paralympic sport on television to understand how some of these things work. Um, and it's a, it's on an individual sports basis, and everybody does it differently. I think some sports are doing it better than others. But, uh, you know, in the end, I guess, uh, as an athlete, you want to go to an event which is the world on the world stage, like the Paralympic Games, and you want to compete on a level playing field.
1: And what brought on the change to go into cycling and then for the goal to compete at the Beijing Olympics?
0: I guess the, the catalyst for change in the end was um, the lifestyle that skiing requires, being overseas for four to six months every year, um You know lots of travel, not really able to being have a normal life or a normal job at home or anything like that um, and uh my my wife at the time we had a baby on the way um you know, I really wanted to be home for all of those things and and we don 't have the resources of um, some of the major sporting. Um, teams to be able to take our families and, and wives and stuff overseas and travel together and all of these sorts of things, or even for part of the time. So uh, you know, for me that meant a retirement skiing, and in the end it was it was good timing for me anyway. I think I performed at my very best in my late twenties and was starting to go downhill a little bit, but at the same time I still had. Uh, the competitive desire, the, the desire to compete and to uh, you know really challenge myself and test myself, and so uh, I looked towards my other passion in life, which was riding my bike. Um, went to Adelaide. Tried out the velodrome, saw a bit of potential And then uh, started to work towards trying to qualify for the Beijing Paralympic Games
1: And of course you went on to qualify the uh, Beijing Summer Olympics there too Was it difficult to adapt to a Summer Olympic environment Rather than a Winter Olympic and Paralympic environment Or are they both pretty much the same?
0: I think there's huge differences You know, going from a sport where the person who wins a ski race uh, Is the person who has the best technique And then going to a bike race Where the person who wins a bike race Is the person who's the fittest and strongest and the change in emphasis in terms of training, even little things like the the different cultures within the organisation from a a serious disciplined sport like cycling, um, coming from a a skiing background where things, you know, the types of personalities of people that are attracted to the sport are are people who may be a little bit more relaxed, a little more carefree. Um, You know, there was was some quite major challenges in, in all of those things for me transferring from one sport to another.
1: You must love the weather, though, then, you're not having to hang around the snow all the time.
0: Well, you know, after, after 20 years, nearly 20 years of, of avoiding summer and, and going overseas every time it hit 25 degrees, 30-degree days scared me and 40-degree <laughs> days were unimaginable. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was something that was pretty scary for me, being home for an Australian summer for the first time um, since I was a child, really, since I was thirteen years of age, you
1: had so, to get a different uh, wardrobe <laughs> it was,
0: it was, it, was a tough, it was a tough thing for me, and I think over the last three or four years, my body has certainly started to acclimatize to be better in in summer
1: but uh, I think I still prefer the winter. Yeah, I'm with you there, Michael. I I hate summer. Coming from Hobart, where we're used to being cold, you get a 25-degree day here and we're melting. I couldn't imagine being 30-degree days all the time (laughs) up there. Now, um, also, you do hold the uh, record for the world's fastest skier with a disability as well as the Australian speed ski record for abled or disabled athletes. (laughs) Speed, 213.65 kilometres an hour. Now, what does it feel like travelling at 200 kilometres an hour? Yeah, you know, it's
0: it's, it's an amazing feel. And going that speed and you know for me snow has magical properties and you know the amount of fun you can have on it the speed you can go on it um is absolutely amazing and to to set a goal to become australia's fastest ever skier with or without a disability was uh was a major challenge for me and something that i worked hard towards for a long time and uh you know the feeling of of going at uh, 213 kilometers an hour is absolutely as you'd expect it to be it's it's Extremely scary. It's uh, it's tough mentally. Um, it's tough physically, battling against the, the buffeting wind. Um yeah, you know, it's an amazing feeling and, and really one of my lifetime achievements that I'm very, very proud of. It
1: just must be an amazing feeling. I couldn't imagine it. But also, Michael, you've recently gone into the world of motivational speaking uh, with Saxton Speakers. Can you tell us a bit about what brought this on in the role of motivational speaking?
0: Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, as an athlete with a disability in a sport that where there's no real prize money, you know, you've got to look at, at different ways to earn a living um, and to try and, you know... Pay for your sporting habit, um, particularly as a skier you know when you're overseas for four to six months a year, it doesn't really allow to have a normal job and while you're overseas you're, you're you know spending money hand over foot on equipment on transport on lift tickets on everything um, so yeah, you know for me, speaking was a way of of really being able to have a job um, and work in an area that um, had good financial rewards. Didn't require me to be in the country year round, and uh, it was also something I felt like I had a little bit of talent for. And, and some of the great stories about you know what it's really like to ski at over two hundred kilometres an hour, some of the challenges I faced, some of the lessons that I've learnt throughout my lifetime of having disability. There are all topics that I think many people are interested in. And I guess these days, after having gone through cancer twice as well, um, there's, there's more stories there about overcoming challenges. And it's uh, you know I guess an industry that for me has worked very very well um, in terms of being able to pay for my sporting habits.
1: And obviously a very rewarding uh, feeling too given that you can help their motivational speak towards people and the reception you get from that too must also give you a very rewarding feeling at the end of it.
0: Absolutely you know I get some fantastic messages through my website of, of people who have heard me speak and, and really um, come out of the session feeling, feeling good, feeling um, like they can achieve things and overcome the challenges in their life and at the same time when, you, when you're up at the end of a presentation and you've got you know, 500 to 1,000 people clapping. Um, clapping away. you know. In many ways it is like a sporting performance. You're up there to perform and if you perform well then one of those rewards is is the applause that you get at the end of it.
1: Now look Michael, we're nearly at the end of our interview. Now before we wrap things up with a set of questions we like to ask all our guests I'm not sure if you are aware of it or not but here on the brink we are trying to campaign to get the Summer Olympics to Hobart in 2020. Now uh, we're getting support, we need more of it. Can we get you backing for a 2020 Olympics in Hobart?
0: Well that's a tough question you know. I I guess uh, when when I hear something like that, my mind goes back to... uh Roy and HG's bid to have the, uh, the Winter Games in Smiggin's Holes, which is an extremely small ski resort um, in New South Wales. So, Not the first
1: time uh, we've I'm, been compared I'm, to that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm hesitant to, uh, to understand the seriousness of your bid, but certainly if, if you send me some, some paperwork, some of the official bid documents, then uh, I'll be happy to put my name behind it.
1: Oh, look, we'll tell you what, we started off as a bit of a joke, but um, given the level of support we're achieving with it now, from uh, local politicians and that, who are sort of going, look, why not? And um, previous guests and the likes of uh, Bradbury and Jane Savile that we've had on the show, we're we're getting this, and uh, look, we're happy to send you through some stuff, and uh, we'll we'll get your name on it if you like. There, that,
0: that'd be fantastic. Maybe I can give you some advice straight up front. That maybe 2020 is is a little bit early. I think maybe you might need another another ten or twelve years to. Um recruit uh, a couple more million people to Tasmania to uh, build the stadiums and all the infrastructure required it, but, you be know a drive. I mean, I've competed down um, in Tasmania um, in the Mark Webber Challenge last year. And, you know, I mean, it's a beautiful natural environment. I think it'd be a fantastic setting for the Olympic Games.
1: Oh, that's good. Good to hear that we can get you on there if we send you through some stuff. Now, look, Mark, we'll just quickly wrap it up with a set of four questions I'd like to ask our guests. Probably the easiest questions you will ever get asked in your career. So if you're nice and relaxed, we'll get straight into it now.
0: Okay, Are they things like my name and how old I am? Oh,
1: well, maybe a little bit more difficult than that, possibly. Maybe a bit more thought process. But we'll start off with uh, what's your favourite type of cheese?
0: Oh, my favourite type of cheese um, would have to be uh, a nice French brie. Yes, uh, spent a lot of time in France, speed skiing, and uh, yeah, some of the cheeses over there are pretty, pretty wacky and pretty horrible, but a good French brie is very nice.
1: Very popular choice, the brie one. A lot of the, a lot of the guests like that one. Uh, question number two: Are you a fold or a scruncher? I fold. Oh, that's, that's what really. we like to hear. The intelligent people fold, Michael. <laughs> that's what we like to hear.
0: <laughs> uh, maybe it's got to do with some the the a- asymmetrical shape of my rear end, but folding <laughs> seems to work better for me.
1: <laughs> I never thought of it that way. Oh, there you go. Question. Uh, <laughs> Question number three, are we alone in the universe?
0: I believe
1: we are. Oh, we are. Wow. What? You, I think it might be a Winter Olympic athlete sort of thing because Stephen Bradbury was our only previous guest to say we're alone as well. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, it's a bit disappointing.
0: I guess, you know, I'm, I'm a very rational per- person and I've never seen any proof otherwise.
1: Maybe it's the snow. Maybe the snow goes to your brain or something.
0: <laughs> it's Absolutely possible. You know, there's a, there's a, uh, actually quite a... Um, bit of a trait in winter athletes to lose their hair quite early. Ah. and uh, We're yet to work out if it's the amount of time that we wear our helmets or whether it's something to do with the climate.
1: Hmm. Maybe we should look into that one as well. Yeah,
0: you'll see it it next week. The, uh, The two Alpine skiers competing for Australia, Craig Branch and John O'Brow are both uh, limited in the
1: hair department, <laughs> as am I. <laughs> I'm sure come come Vancouver time we're seeing, you know, 25-year-old um, athletes going bald and people are going, Absolutely. what's going on there? Yep. And our final question, uh, Michael, of course, with the Hobart 2020 Olympics, we're always open to suggestions for events. Is there a particular event that might not necessarily be on the Olympic schedule, winter or summer, that you wouldn't mind seeing get a bit of a go at the Hobart Olympics?
0: Oh, you told me these were going to be easy and you're forcing me to use my... Uh, Uh, underpowered brain, Um, is there a particular event that I would like to see? Mm. Um, You know, what about, uh, well, thinking of Tasmania and, and, you know, what you guys are good at? Wood shopping would come to mind. Something that I would love to see. It would be good to to have you guys well represented. Maybe something like adventure racing.
1: That could work as well. Get Mark Webber Challenge as an Olympic event. He can be the forefront of that, you know.
0: That would be be fantastic. Some sort of, of, you know, use the Tasmanian nature, bit of mountain biking, bit of trail running, maybe some kayaking or swimming.
1: Go well. We yeah, it's a bit
0: of an off-road triathlon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We uh, when we yeah. spoke to David Foster about it, he was all for the wood chopping. And of course, our main stadium yeah, is actually course. named after David Foster, the David Foster Stadium. So yeah, there we go. And the yeah. wood chopping in the main stadium it worked brilliantly. Michael Milton, yeah. thank you very much for your time today. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on board. Good luck with everything in the future, and uh, hopefully the motivational speaking will go very well for you as well.
0: Thanks very much. Thanks for the chat, Ben.
1: I should say that with Michael, he did actually uh, go to the Sochi Games as an assistant coach to the Australian Paralympic team, and uh, also, uh, since that interview, uh, broke the world record for running a marathon with crutches uh, in, in 2013, 7th of July, a time of 5 hours, 23 minutes and 30 seconds. So uh, that certainly is an incredible achievement. And uh, also, again, since that interview, has been inducted into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame in 2014 as well as the ACT Sports Hall of Fame. So amazing career, an amazing athlete, and we appreciate uh, Michael's time, of course, on this show. And as we've said with plenty of these vault interviews, we to get him on the show again. And uh, see how uh, see how all that plays out. And get his opinion heading up into Pyeongchang in 2018. You can listen to all these other interviews. Headed to iTunes, easiest way. Subscribe to us. You can find all our old interviews there. Like us on Facebook Stay up to date With what's going on In the program We always appreciate Any sorts of messages Comments, feedback And uh, Colin, Jared, myself We read them all So thank you Um, You can do that On iTunes of course And just stay up to date If there's anyone Perhaps you want us To track down In terms of an interview we, We also can do that too We apparently have Amazing sleuthing skills and uh, we can definitely put those to the test. So thank you again to, for tuning in. I'll, I'll learn to speak properly. Perfect time to close this out, and uh, we'll speak to you next time here on Off The Podium.